Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. I'm Ian Montgomery, one of the co-founders of Label Sessions. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. In this episode, we have a conversation with Andy Norman. I connected with Andy about seven years ago through a moment of serendipity after someone left his business card on my desk in a client's office. I gave him a call, learned about the business he was building at the time, and we started to explore what we could do together. Andy's a perfect fit for what we're doing at Label Sessions, as he's the ultimate provocateur. He's endlessly curious, never afraid to put himself out there, and has a lifetime of incredible experiences with the storytelling to show it. Maxine of Label Sessions talks to Andy and finds out what he's all about. Andy Norman, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's Can so valuable. Hold on, hold on. When you thank me for my time, I have to tell you. It, it's so incredibly valuable these days that, uh, you know, doing this is, is truly, it's my, you know, they all say it's my pleasure, but it really is my pleasure. So there we go. That's, uh, that, that's the, the value of my time, the, the shrinking value of my time, basically. Go ahead. Where's go ahead. the most precious yes. asset that we all have? Um, tell us a bit about yourself and share kind of a, where you're at today, like physically, mentally, what keeps you busy? Oh, God, about myself. Lordy, that's a loaded question. There's so many layers there that we can go into. We can talk professional, we can talk personal, we can talk spiritual. Oh my God, we can talk sportive. Uh, there's so many things, but let's just say, let's just say that I'm a guy who is now in the 40, hold on, let me see. I've been working full time for 47 years. I know it's so hard to believe, but 47 years I've been working um, uh, full-time. Although these days it's not really full-time. I'm kind of uh, bouncing around different interesting projects and looking for things that are, uh, my criteria is, is, I used to say my criteria is, is it more interesting than walking my dog and reading or reading a book? My dog died. So now it's just the one criteria, is it more interesting than reading a book? So that's how I decide what what I want to work on. Um, But Basically, everything I, I, I do, I, I guess, um, uh, and perhaps even, I, I, mean, I mean, it may even show in, in, in the way I'm dressed, perhaps, is don't be boring. Have, you know, have fun. Go, go ahead and take a risk. Take a chance. Do something that, that hasn't been done. So I'll just take you back, you know, uh, 47 years. I started, I was a, a 16-year-old, and those mathematicians of you out there saying, okay, 47, I'm 16. So you're figuring out my age. <laughs> um, but uh, I started as a, a journalist, a young rock and roll journalist uh, when I was 16. And back then, you know, Kids of 16 weren't rock and roll journalists, unless you're Cameron Crowe, of course. Um, and uh, But I didn't let that stop me. And, you know, one of the things I got to tell you, I'm going through like a little bit of a personal crisis right now, not, not at this very instant, but like at this point in my life. And one of the things I have is journals. I've been journaling, not journaling like, um, you know, like some spiritual thingamajig. It's just to-do lists and day-to-day, what am I doing? What am I feeling? What, what did I accomplish today? And I've been doing this since I was 18. And when I look back on those journals today, because I, I have a new one for every year, and you know, here, here's what. Here's almost my, my microphone. Here's my, like for, for right now, this is this year's journal. Um, but I, I look back over my life and I'm saying, wow, what an incredible life. What, and things I've forgotten and it's amazing. So that's, you know, when, when I had that, that, that thing, don't be, bo- don't be boring, you know, take risks. It, it's been that way my whole life. And perhaps sometimes without even me knowing it or doing it um, uh, consciously, it's just me doing it. So Andy, <laughs> you've, t- you've shared a little bit around 
your journey from 16 to now. Was that the career path in life that you had in mind? Because I once heard a rumor that you wanted to be, or when you were a child, wanted to be a garbage man. Correct. And here's what I've learned about, well, I'm going to tell you about that, that aspiration, and I'm going to tell you about career paths. Here's why I wanted to be a garbage man. Because when I was a kid, I lived on a street called Westbury, which is very British, by the way, very, very Westbury. It's, you know, it sounds like a, you, know, you have to be like a lord to live on that street. Well, trust me, you did not. And <laughs> my window of my room faced out onto the street, and the garbage men would come twice a week, um, rolling down this road in this massive truck, guys hanging on to this moving vehicle. They went to get these cans that were all cans. They were metal at the time. They were throwing them around, making noise, yelling at each other. And I said, how do I get a gig like that? What a blast. They're, they're, they're riding shotgun on some moving vehicle, running off, throwing things. I said, that is the life for me. And, it re- and to the point where my, I made my dad, I didn't make him because you know, I was a kid, but I requested very, very passionately that he find me a garbage truck. And, and sure enough, on one of his trips to New York, he went to a department store there and lo and behold was a garbage truck that worked where you pulled the lever, the thing went backwards and you were able to put stuff in it. And I was like the happiest kid on earth. So I always found that to be a, a great career aspiration. And frankly, working in show business allowed me to actually realize that dream of being a garbage (laughs) man. Now, you talk about career paths. You know, um, I'll just tell you what what I learned. And when I was 16, all I wanted to do is be a journalist. I was actually a pretty decent writer, and uh, I I think I still am, but that's my own personal ego speaking. And uh, I love music. So let's put the two together. I wanted to be a rock and roll journalist. So that so I, I I didn't know how and there was an ad in a newspaper one time look they were looking for somebody in sports and I put two and two together and I said they aren't asking for entertainment but I am on the outside of a newspaper if I'm on the inside of a newspaper it's way easier to me to be closer to the entertainment people so let me just get in first so I applied I got the job blah 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 and suddenly um, within a week I was I wrote my first article on P- Peter Frampton. Uh, 1976, during the whole Frampton Comes Alive craze. And then I started to write these articles for this, for this newspaper. And then, you know, less than a year later, the um, uh, entertainment editor got fired. So I became the entertainment editor. I, I had just turned 18. I had just turned 18. I was the entertainment editor of a newspaper. And I was the happiest kid in the world. And I was going to school at the time. But there was my career path. It was beautiful. It was exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be a rock and roll journalist. And here I was, a rock and roll journalist, going to concerts and going backstage and meeting bands and getting free albums. <laughs> it, was in, it, it, it was heaven. And then I got fired. And I was 22. And I, th- and I literally thought my life was over. Um, and I remember my girlfriend at the time, uh, I, I said, my life is over. I mean, this is it. I really thought my career was over. Uh, my life was over. My, my, my work was over at the age of 22. And that's when I realized the folly of having a career path because you actually think you're in control of where you're going. And, you know, you may, so that's why I've learned just, Hey, you know what? Follow the road. And when you see a fork, take it. And um, because allow yourself to be led versus say, this is where I got to go. Because if you put those blinders on, say, this is where I'm going, you may be missing the opportunities of a lifetime that may be coming at you this way. So like, sorry, I can't see them because I have these blinders on. So that is how I felt about uh, career paths. And uh, I've always 
said, you know, let's see what, uh, what life brings me. But I'll give you one last example. Sometimes you may be on the way to a job interview for the dream job that you want. And on the way there, you may meet someone or on the way back, you may meet someone or you may read something or you may find something that will set you on, you know, the perhaps the path you should be on versus taking that job interview. But that's the openness I've always led life with. And uh, uh, it, 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 it's done pretty well for me, I'd say, and perhaps not phenomenon, phenomenally, but it's, it's done pretty well. And I guess that openness must have taken you on the journey for, well, I guess, in the creation of Just for Laughs. Could you tell us about the conception story and, and, and how you co-founded um, Just for Laughs and what that was like? Well, I was touring. Now, I don't know where this is going to eventually play, and I don't know who's eventually going to watch where. So I'll try and in integrate both North American and British uh, references. But I was touring a guy at the time um, named Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel is quite the well-known comedian here in North America, I guess around, you know, he tours the world. But at the time, he was a, a young comedian, and uh, he wasn't really known for being a comedian because of the fact uh, he was on a TV show on NBC called St. Elsewhere, where he played a doctor. So a lot of people knew him as an actor who played a doctor. And he wanted to do a, a, a tour. But let, let me step back for a second to tell you how life gives you the, these moments. So um, Howie was a friend, and my friend Ruben Fogel was a concert promoter who I knew from being a rock and roll journalist. Called me and said, "I want to do a you know a date with Howie Mandel." So I said, "I know Howie. I'll put you two together." So I put the the, the two of them um, together, and Ruben said, "Listen, this is really you know because I was working for Ruben at the time, uh, writing press releases for his for his comedy shows, getting fifty dollars a crack." And Ruben said, listen, this is you know, way more than that. I, do, do you want to co-promote the show with me? So I said, well, what, what does co-promote mean? I don't understand. He says, well, you, know, it, you put up $10,000, I put up $10,000, and whatever we make over $10,000, we split. And I said, well, that's wonderful. But I was like 23 at the time because I was fired, remember, from the newspaper job, and I was just trying mm -hmm. to pick up. My, and I said, where am I going to find $10,000? But luckily, a cousin of mine loaned me ten grand, and – we put it up and we'd sold out the show and there we were. And I was a concert promoter for a night. And that night I went to appreciate, this is, goes to the story I told you before. I was went outside to say, wow, let me just see people coming to my show. And then I saw a guy scalping tickets. I said, this is amazing. You know, you're doing well when you did your first show and they're scalping tickets. It was incredible. Cause at the time, you know, people stood there with tickets and scalp them and, um, and got more money for them. And I've said, Oh, that guy looks familiar. Oh, that's how he's tour manager. And those are the 20 tickets we give him for free. Hmm. So I went and told Ruben. I said, is he allowed to do that? Ruben said, no. And Ruben went to Howie. He said, we caught your guy scalping tickets. Howie asked him if it's true. It was. Bang. Guy's fired. And Howie says, I have four more dates across the country. Do you want to take them? Okay. So suddenly I'm promoting concerts across the country. And they went, well, and Howie said, I really want to do the U.S. Can you do it? Okay, so um, that's when he was an actor. We had to go ahead and really build a market because they they knew him as as the doctor on St. Elsewhere. We had to say no, no, no. He's a comedian. We had you know a lot of advertising, and uh, but it it worked. And suddenly we had a sold out tour of Howie Mandel across um, the United States. And what really worked was the fact that he was doing St. Elsewhere at the time. So we had to go ahead and do the dates Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then Monday, he'd go back, depending on where we were, East Coast, West Coast. Monday, he'd go back to work at St. Elsewhere, finish Friday morning, Friday afternoon on a plane for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday dates. So it was an incredible experience. And I was teaching school at the time. So it was just like 
incredible of us getting together. So while I was doing that, um, Gilbert Rosan was a guy who started Just for Laughs in French, Just Pour Rire, and he was trying to launch this uh, in English. And Ruben actually put me together with Gilbert because they were looking for a guy who spoke some French, knew a bit of comedy, knew the American market, um, was local, was Montreal, blah, blah, blah. And you know, these are all the criteria. And I was like the only guy who fit the criteria. So suddenly I'm there. And that's how it, how it, uh, how it began. Now I can start telling you other stories of what we did and how our first trip to London and blah, blah, blah. But that's how the, the thing um, uh, became. That's how I mm -hmm. became part of Just For Less, right on the ground floor. And I'll, I'll just tell you oh, too, yes, Maxine. Maxine, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to. I'm sorry, I'm going to be like the the the, the boorish uh, interview subject who just completely takes over. Um, the sorry about this, but, but you know, uh, one of the things that um, that we we learned um, in the process is that you got to understand back then there was no such thing as a comedy festival. Zero. There was the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. There were there were festivals, but there wasn't. The, there was no such thing as a comedy festival. So when we had to go to the states and we had to go to England to say we're doing a comedy festival, people. People looked at us, we were out of our minds, but you know, it worked. You might have been, but it still worked. Well put. So I think what's really interesting here, hearing this, Andy, is the fact that what you were talking about and not having blinkers means that you're open to being the right person, the right guy at the right time with the right skills. And it's a sense of openness to opportunity and seeing where it takes you. Um, let me ask you now, was there a moment you knew that Just for Laughs had really taken off? Because you, you talked about in the first comedy gigs that you were co you, you were promoting and seeing people scalping tickets and being like, that's a marker. What for Just for Laughs, what was the moment you knew it taken off? Because I'm huh. curious if you are the type of person that can celebrate your victories. Okay, well, that's a big, two-headed monster question you just asked me. So let's deal with the first one. Please, uh, given my advanced age, when I forget the second part of it, you will remind me that it has to be to do with celebration. But the first part is, what was there a moment? And this this was the 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 accenture, one could say, the the, the climb. It was 1987. We realized people were coming to just for laughs from the states to discover comedians that we discovered in the States. So it was kind of strange, but if they, they, we were doing the homework, they weren't, and they came to us as sort of the aggregator. So that was 87. We said, you know, that's kind of interesting that the industry is starting to feel this. And, and, um, but at the end of 87, uh, I got a call from a guy named Marty Klein. And Marty was the the um, uh, the president of the APA Agency of P Performing Arts Agency of the Performing Arts, who had some huge clients at the time. I mean, it, it may not mean much to people right now, but John Candy, um, Sam Kinison, Johnny Cash was a client. I mean, some massive clients. And he said that he was born in Montreal, and his agents came back from the festival, and they said, "Hey, this is really a cool thing. It's really really cool." And he said, "Look." Um, I looked into it. My agents love going. I looked at your TV show last year because we did TV shows. It was on Showtime. He says, basically, it was a piece of shit. It was dull, terrible, boring. Why don't you work with me and I can go ahead next year. I'm going to get you an HBO special. I'm going to get you a ton of money. I'm going to get you $600,000, which at the time for an hour special. It was like, oh, my God. It was you know millions upon millions in today's dollars. 
And uh, he said, that's what I'm going to do. So immediately I, I've pictured like, you know, like, I was Robert Johnson at the crossroads and this guy was going to grow horns and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask your firstborn, you know? And I said, yikes, what is this going to cost? But he was just the sweetest, nicest guy. He was born in Montreal, um, a Jewish guy who basically saw another young Jewish guy born in Montreal trying to do something. And he, that was it. So we started to um, work together. So, it led to, in 1988, the first ever non-sports live broadcast of an event from Canada into the United States with our 1988 uh, HBO special hosted by John Candy, who was one of Marty's clients. So you asked me, was there a moment when I realized? And on that 1988 show, it started out, we started it outdoors. It, it, we had a steady cam. I don't know if you know what that is. People, you know, it, it follows somebody and, and there's no wobble on the camera. It followed the performer in through the aisles of the St. Denis Theater and the whole place was going crazy. I'm saying, wow, this is something. And then um, it, it, they, the, the guy who did his rap introduced John Candy. He said, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen John Candy. And the band was playing and people were going berserk live from Montreal. It's just for laugh. And the noise level, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. And it was like one of those things where sort of a spirit passes through your body and goes, whoa, like that. That was the moment. And that was the moment I realized at that very moment with the band, with the horns playing and people yelling and John Kennedy coming on stage and the guy saying live from Montreal. And, and you see the screen and, and, you know, that, that's going live broadcast. That moment I said, oh, man, we made it. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I can almost like feel like I was there with like oh, the yeah, was, your hair it, it, must have been standing yeah, on us. Yeah, yeah, it's uh and it's on it's on YouTube. You can probably find it, 1988 uh, special, but that that moment that when he when he Barry mm -hmm. Sobel was played a rap artist, walked through the audience and introduced John Candy on stage, and John K Candy came out as as MC John wearing these big chains and all that. Anyway, it was just something. But you asked about celebration. Um I, I you know I gotta say that there was, we never had much time for celebration because even that night, even I still remember that night, show was over. Um, you know, Marty for some reason, you know, who was my my god, Marty Klein was, was was like pissed at me, so I had to deal with that. And then HBO said, okay, you know, the, you know the, we we got to edit the show down now, so because uh, it's live now, we got to edit it for a, for subsequent airings. So we had a meeting, and then even while you're in these meetings, you're getting phone calls. You know, there's a show here that's not going well. There's a show, there's a problem here. Uh, can you come on down and say hello to this person who's leaving? So, so there was never time to 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 celebrate, even the close party and just for laughs you know the next day we had our press conference so you know while everyone was partying hey all the artists all the we were getting ready for the next day's press conference what are we going to say and what are the figures and we're getting the figures in this is you know the 80s and 90s when you know figures were not as easily readable uh and available as today so whew, so i i gotta say the the, the celebrations were were and then when we finally had time to celebrate we were all so exhausted so you know, again, no complaints, but that's the truth. Is that something you regret? Nah, I don't regret that. You know, better that than say, okay, you know what? I'm working in a company that, you know, met its quarterly, you know, objective and we're going to have, you know, cake and cookies and coffee and, you know, bad wine. You know, that's, uh, you know, to me, the celebration was in the moment was in the moment and there were so many moments. And I would always say this, just for laughs, every day was like a year. 
Every day was like a year. You get up in the morning, so much goes on that at the end of the day, you say, was that 24 hours or was that 365 days? So, you know, there, there were so many moments, the ups and downs, the triumphs, the tribulations. So you celebrated in the moment and you moved on. So there's no regrets. You've made a few career jumps in your time. How do you decide when you're ready to kind of a, take on your next challenge? Like, how, how do you go about that? First time was easy. I got fired. That was a real easy way to, uh, to have a career change. And I got to tell you why I got fired. It wasn't because of incompetence. I was just going to ask. It was because I had an asshole boss. So he, here's the story. At, at just at uh, Sunday Express, the newspaper I was working at, where I was the happiest person in the world, um, I was going to school. And since I was one of the few people who had ever been to university working on the newspaper staff, they said, well, we got to give you a marketing position because I was taking marketing at, at McGill University. So I became the entertainment editor and promotion manager. So to me, promotion was obviously sell more papers, but also get to know the readers and do things you know, with, with, with the readers. So we had an event with all with our readers, a big event, which was a cruise. Actually, I'm looking out where that boat went because the, the view I have from my place right now was actually where that boat went along the St. Lawrence River. Then we went <laughs> up to Old Montreal in this huge loft called the Old Spaghetti Warehouse and had about 200 of our readers there for a party. So I didn't go on the boat because I had to prepare the room, make sure everything's well. And I was, you know, I was very proud. I was a you know, guy, we you know, wearing a jacket and tie. I was uh, 22 and very proud of this evening I put together. So a few people got, uh, you know, a little inebriated, we'll say, inebriated on the boat. And they came back. And one of the people who was inebriated was this guy. I could mention his name because screw him. You know, what's he going to do? Sue me? Um, the guy's name Mike Lawton, because it's true. And I don't even know if he's, if he's alive anymore. But anyway, so Mike Lawton was there. And Mike uh, was our sales manager. And Mike thought it would be fun, you know, a little drunk. And he said, look at this little 22-year-old arsehole wearing a tie. So I'm going to go ahead and cut his tie with a scissors in front of all the people he invited and in front of all the readers of the paper and the sponsors and all that. So he did that. And then he laughed. And, uh, you know, I, as you can probably tell, you know, clothes mean a little bit to me. So um, I said, well, on the scale of jocularity, the, the, the scales of jocularity, what equals a cut tie? And I said, hmm. And I process. I said, perhaps a glass of red wine thrown onto Mike Lawton's white Lacoste sweater is equal in jocularity. So that's what I did. And I said, congrats, we are equal. Cut tie, stained sweater, done. Let's move on. <clears throat> Unfortunately, two weeks later, the editor of the newspaper, a guy named Duncan Weir, who I loved and got along with, was, was fired. And who took his place? Mike Lawton. And what was Mike Lawton's first act of business? Get rid of the little asshole who threw wine on his sweater. So that was, you know, how I changed careers. And as I said, I was despondent because I said my life is over. But um, the other career changes I, I had more to do with. Because when I was at Just for Laughs, I was there for a number of years. Um, I think I, I, I'm terrible with years. I think 15. Let's see. Uh, 1999, left in 1999. I started there at 84. Okay, so about 15 years, uh, 14, 15 years. And um, I was getting bored. I was getting bored. And the internet, and oh my God, it's going to age me. But the internet had just started. It had just, just, I, I had registered the, the hahaha.com um, URL 
And we were one of the first people with a website. And I remember somebody telling me, um, they said, you know what, if we open the window, because we were, we, our office was on a pretty well-trafficked street, if we open the window and yell out the window, we will reach more people than we will reach with our website. I said, you are correct today. You are correct today. But this is not a move for today. It's a move to establish us forever. So uh, I established the website, and, but I got really interested in the internet. And that became way more interesting to me than comedy. And after seeing so much comedy, I still remember I was with my friend Howard Lapidus. We were at a club in Los Angeles. And he said, if you're spending more time looking at the girls in the audience than you are at the performers on stage, you're, you, the, the business isn't doing it for you anymore. So I said, okay, good point. And at that point in time, I decided, I, I had a friend, Garner Bornstein, and we had some, I had written a book and I wanted the website for the book. And I told him how much I love the internet. And he says, why'd you just leave just for us? We'll start a business together. And I did it. And that was a very, very tough uh, decision. And uh, we started a, a web company, uh, a web content company, when there was no content on the web. Believe it or not, this is so long ago. There was no content on the web. So we said, we're going to build content for the web. Everyone thought we were nuts. The company was called Eyeball Glue. Get it? Because, you know, it glues your eyeballs to the screen. That was what, what we called the company. But we were a little ahead of the game. And, uh, and you talk about career paths. Again, letting it, it happen for, to you. So basically, Eyeball Glue was ahead of the game. We... we, we they, they, you, know, you couldn't sell people to put content on their sites. And the content that came in, I, again, you're up too young to remember, but it came in like this, line by line, even a picture, line by line. So it was slow. And we realized at one point in time, we said, we're not going to make it. So we had to, you know, we had investment money in the company and we said, uh, well, we can do one of two things, return it or, or, or as we say in, in, in par, business parlance today, we could pivot. So we decided to pivot. We said, well, how are we going to pivot? And Garner had been to conferences in, in, in Europe. Um, and uh, and, and, and uh, he said, well, you know what's the next thing? Mobile. So we said, we may be able to stave off bankruptcy, starvation in our investors by saying we're taking a pivot to mobile. And I remember, I remember distinctly, one of the guys that just for laughs came to me and said, I can't believe it. You left a life of traveling first class, having your ass kissed by all these performers, producing TV shows, working with stars, poor, and he said in, in French, pour les niaiseries sur les téléphones cellulaires, which means for little bullshit ridiculousness on, on cellular phones. And I said, yeah. So basically that was uh, 1999 uh, into 2000 and uh, we, went, we went mobile and uh, we were really, really early in that. But, you know, it was more when people say, oh, you were prescient, how brilliant you were. Oh, my God, you saw it coming. You saw the future. No, we saw starvation. We saw bankruptcy. We saw how find me a way to stave that off. That's what we saw. We were risk takers. We were gutsy. But, you know, it wasn't we were prescient. So what was the motivation to keep going in that kind of a, the face of adversity through like being a very early entrance in, say, the mobile world? Was it just starvation or was there something else, Andy? Um, you know, you wanted, you didn't want to give up. You didn't want to give up, um, you know, uh, uh, you didn't want to give up. You didn't want to give up a salary. You, you had a wife and kids at home. You had a mortgage. You had, you know, you, you had responsibility to people who put money into you. You had responsibility to yourself to say, hey, I, I want to, you know, in, I, I want to do something. I want to do something great and different. So, you know, even though we, 
doubted ourselves. We had to tell people, like I, re- I still remember one day, we would go to presentations, one day people are going to watch television on these things. We, when, the, when the screen was green with you know, grayscale, it was grayscale with, with black dots, or it was a green screen with black dots. And we said, well, people are going to watch television on this. It wasn't even the color screen. They said, you guys, you're insane. You're nuts. You know, but what do you do? That's <laughs> why I always said like marketing is one part, you know, um, um, vision and another part larceny. Because you have to see the future, but then you have to convince the people that, uh, hey, this is really going to happen. And you basically are lying at that point in time because you really don't know. So, um, you know, but but there was a bit of desperation, but there was a bit of, you know, aspiration, I guess, uh, along the way as well. And, you know, well, what's the option? The option is is throwing in the towel. And that's not that bad all, sometimes either. But, you know, we... we you know, you said there's still a bit of money in the bank and there's this does seem to be working. So if we can go ahead and convince people that we know what we're talking about, you know, we've given ourselves six, seven more months. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast for live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to just collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. So in some of your writing and teaching, you talk about having guts and having guts that other people possibly don't. Can you help us understand what having guts means to you? Because all these things you're telling me about sound quite gutsy. Yeah, you, you, it's just, I, I guess we go back to the don't be boring element. Um, doing uh, always leads you to more than not doing. And I know that sounds so simple and almost Yoda-esque, and that's not what it's meant to sound like. But I'm thinking back to uh, just some speeches I've, I've given. Now, now, I used to give a lot of speeches. I, I don't much anymore because I don't think people really, you know, like some of the, the stuff that, that I do, unfortunately, because it's, it, it is of this nature. Uh, and I'll explain what of this nature is. Like I used to give speeches. I, they were based on books that I had written and they, they were, you know, uh, there were three P's. I call, you know, point, pace, uh, PowerPoint, pace, and prop. So what that meant was, you know, um, oh, you, oh, sorry, point, PowerPoint, pace, and prop. You had a PowerPoint, you pointed to it, you paced the stage, and once in a while you brought up a prop and say, look what I have, I have this thing, like I'm doing right now. Look what I have, I have a Just for Laughs character made in wood. You know, and that's, that's what your speech would do. You know, you, and, and it would be by rote, and you would learn it, and you would do it, click, 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 and, and you got to the point where, I would be giving a speech and think of something else. The words were just coming out of my mouth. I'd say, I'm so not engaged in what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, I was getting paid well for it. But, but I'm saying, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a lie. I'm standing here thinking about something else and the words are coming out of my mouth, but my head's somewhere else. So I started doing these insane speeches. Um, and some of them are online. There was one called um, Grow Wings, which was uh, a 10-minute um uh, speech on creativity based on images I had never, ever seen before, um, the, uh, which was done at the C2 conference in Montreal. I did one called um, Our National Anthem, which was, you know, I, I say, why do events, why don't events have national anthems? You know, sporting teams do and uh, countries do and, you know, the Olympics. So it was a startup fest. It was a business. And, and we basically created, we improvised. We had 17 minutes to improvise a, 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 an anthem based on a music track that's that the audience would it's almost like it's it's cross improvisation and business that's that's what they did but 
in both cases, I could have fallen on my ass horribly. And, and sometimes I do. And that's, that's the thing. That's the risk you take. But, but it's so much more gratifying. The win is so much more gratifying than the, you know, the, oh, yeah, that was nice. Thank you for going through your slides again and going through a speech you did 4,000 times. So that's guts. It's just that, 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 that the, the, the win of uh, the feeling you get after the win of putting yourself on the line versus the, the feeling you get after the win of saying, you know what, I went ahead and I analyzed this and I did this and I spoke to this one and I had it consulted and I went ahead and I focus group did and I did this and I did that and I did that and I did that. Oh, that's nice. Versus, okay, I'm just going to go out there and just, try something and maybe I'm going to fall. But man, if it kicks, I am going to be elated and euphoric. And there's a very, there's a very, there's not an, enough elation and euphoria in business. It's, you know, uh, I've, I've read so, speed so often. I read an article in, in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about how more and more inventors are being usurped by big companies. And once they get to the, the big company, they are basically, you know, blanketed by, um, uh, by bureaucracy. It, I read the story about the, the guy who started, I forget his name, but he started Waze and Google bought him. And then they, he was there. They used to be, okay, we're going to do this. And, so, and then Google was, hold on. You got, it has to go here. It has to go there. We have to do this. It has to go past this. Uh, we have to go ahead and go, get tender on this. And then, then it has to go to legal. And once you go, I always would say is once it goes to legal, you're fucked. Because I don't know at any point in time where legal would say, hey, you know what? It's perfect. That's a good idea. Go with it. Go with it. So <laughs> once it goes to legal, you're fucked. And I think it's funny because if we think about these overlapping, I guess, spaces in all our lives where it's like work, our working lives, our personal lives, rest, play, whatever you want to call it, it feels like outside of work environments, elation is really important, celebrating moments. You see it with anniversaries, birthdays, family things, ad infinitum, things with friends. And it's funny because it doesn't really mirror your working life. Yeah, I I, you know, I agree. That's why I said there there should be, you know, there should be true celebration. But again, let's go back to just for laughs. There was always something else. There was always something else, and you didn't really have the time to stop. And I think that should be brought in, brought into it. But you know, the the problem with business is like the problem with life. And I've always said. In one of the books that I wrote, I, I remember this distinctly because believe me, I'm going through this right now on a personal level, is never get too up, never get too down. And the problem with people is when they think the times are good, it's going to last forever. I've shower me in gold. There's a confetti shower of, of, you know, of, of gold flake. Oh, it's gonna, we're going to go straight to the top and we're never coming down. And then when, when, the, when the down happens, the inevitable down um, you don't know how to deal with it. And the same way when people are down, oh my God, things are never going to change. This is it I'm in history. you know. And then you know, uh, it basically climbs up. That's the way it goes. So you, you have to realize that you, know, you can't go out of your mind with celebration when you're up. You can't be a, a, you know, totally despondent when you're down. But you have to be able to deal with the, hey, you know what, let's pick myself up when I'm down. And you have to be able to deal with, let's celebrate, but... In, in in terms of 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 intelligence and in terms of understanding that it's temporary because it's all just temporary and too many people think you know the up is permanent and it's not is that one of your superpowers being able to move between the two so when you're ready to when you're at that fork in the road 
to be able to try something new to back yourself and then use the, I guess, it sounds like at least when we've been talking at do that, it's actually, it's not about the act of celebration. It's about the door that that opens when something's been a success. That's well put. The guts to walk through that door. I guess one could say that, but sometimes you have to set yourself up because so many, I'll give, go back to the speaking engagement. I'll go back to even how I'm teaching at McGill. The the door that's open is not the door you necessarily want to walk through. I mean, or you want to walk through it, but your way. You know, I, hey, I, I want to walk through the door, but not you know wiping my feet on the mat and taking you know some very proper British steps. I want to walk through that door. I want to dive through the door. I want to tumble through the door. I want to do a, a somersault through the door. Um, and it happens that way. Like you know, with speaking, is oh, we want an hour speech on, on on innovation. Okay, what do you want? Twenty slides, or do you want me to do something that's goddamn innovative? You know, pick, take a pick, because I'm not interested in the twenty slides. But the door that's opened is a very standard door. Same thing at McGill. You're teaching a course called um, uh, uh, was advanced. Uh, topics in organizational behavior. Holy shit, advanced topics in organizational behavior. That sounds like, you know, a, a sedative, but it's not, but, 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 you know, but yes, that's what it's called. But my, the class that I've constructed is creativity, curiosity, and guts. So, okay. So the door was open to teach, but I'm saying I, I can only do it if I do something like this. And um, luckily, again, I, I like to use names in both the positive and negative form because so many times people do things for you and they never get, they never get um, championed for it. They never get cheered. They never get congratulated for it publicly. So I, I, I used some names but in, in the past in this interview, but I'm going to use another one. Uh, John Paul Ferguson over at McGill and um, before him, Morty Yalofsky and before him, Peter Todd, three guys who are academics who actually believed in me and said, yeah, we'll take a chance. We'll take a shot on, on what you had to do. And it wasn't, you know, these guys put themselves on the line and these are all tenured professors, you know, two of them were deans of, 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 of the school. They were deans of the management faculty and they let me do stuff. So I think people like this need to be celebrated. Not enough of them in the world. So I've been a bit nosy. I understand uh, I it was uh -oh. like maybe seven years. You wrote a weekly blog around the lessons you learn more than like a thousand lessons. I guess it's to do with the journaling that you talked about earlier. You've, there were experiences that you've kind of captured. Can you talk me through what that experience of really thinking through and contextualizing the lessons you learned, what was like, what was that like for you? Well, it started because I would read a lot and I would take notes like in, in journal. I'd say, hey, you know what? I'm reading a lot and I'm learning something. So what I'm going to try and do is learn something new every week. And I, I say, I'm going to write a blog about that and um, basically recount the things that I've learned reading. And then I realized that's okay, but everyone has access to that. If all they got to do is you know, find it. And, and I said, I got to do something different because I, I found that kind of boring. So I said, no, no, no. you got to be on the lookout. Not that these things can't come in from time to time where you hear something in a speech, or you hear, but you have to be on the lookout. You have to be curious. This is the creative, this is the curious portion of creativity, curiosity, and guts. You have to be curious. You have to look around you. You have to. So I, I really made it important to say, what can I observe that they'll tell me a lesson this week? And there were yeah, about a thousand of them. And you know, some of them still stay in my head to, today. One of them is, is scotch tape. I, I hate scotch tape because when people use scotch tape, 
What's it called? Scotch tape. It's still called Scotch tape in England, or is it called adhesive tape? Or what would you call Scotch tape? It is. And in Scotland, it's just tape. tape. There we go. Ta-da! And, okay, well done. Um, But I always say, when you use Scotch tape, you basically have given up. Because I don't know any time Scotch tape is used in a, in a time that's elegant. It's to stick some sign on something that says, you know, this is closed or this is out of order. Uh, it's on a menu to fix, you know, the, the menu that, 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 that's sort of you know, tearing. It's, I, I've seen it in elevators on glass, you know, broken glass or broken mirrors where it's Scotch tape over. So I said, anytime you're using Scotch tape, you've given up. You basically, it's throwing in the towel. And so that stuck with me. And I, so I, I said, you, anybody who uses scotch tape, particularly, you know, visible scotch tape, you know, if you're using it and you're rolling it around, it's behind something, okay, I get it. But visible scotch tape use means that you just don't give a shit anymore. There was that one. There, there, were, there were so many that, that, that really uh, stuck with me um, over the years. And, um, and, but, but it was all observation. It was like, you know, hmm, I, I, I didn't realize that. And uh, it, was, it was really fun pushing yourself to look for things. And sometimes getting panicked, and I, I, I could show you my old journals where I would feel really great because I, I sometimes I learned like eight things. I said, oh my God, I got two months worth of, of content here. But there are other times like it was, you know, deadline day, which was Saturday and I had nothing and I had to scramble. So you, you got to find something, you know? So that's what, what I did. It sounds like something I did in lockdown actually, which was a, I did, I did a course with a comedy writer all the, and it was all, it was around observational comedy and it was just little tasks around looking for things and finding, I guess a little bit humor in things or your humor in things and, and, and storytelling. It was a, it was a, a really good activity getting when you were kind of a stuck in your, your homes to kind of a get out in your head, um, which was quite good. So that's some interesting advice that you've shared with others around your observations. But let me ask you, is there any memorable advice that you've been given through, through, through your, the crossroads and forks in the road for you? You know what? I, if, if there's regrets in life, I guess the regret is I never really had um, a mentor. Um, you know, my, my father was taught me a couple of important things. He got sick young, died young. Um, you know, Marty Klein taught me a few things. Um, there was a guy, Arthur Price, who was the manager of Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart, who became a semi-mentor and gave me advice one time. He said, don't stay at this hotel. We went for, for lunch. He goes, uh, who are these people? Do you recognize them? I said, no, I don't know who they are. It was exactly the point. You're in show business. Stay at a show business hotel where you, where you, when you're in the world, not here at some tourist place. I thought, okay. That was, but that's, you know, that, that was interesting advice. But, you know, that, those soul, you know, cleansing, head expanding moments of, of advice, unfortunately, never really came. And don't, and not for, you know, for lack of trying or for want of looking for it. I did. And I, you know, the goal of mine was always to, you know, sit down at the feet of the master, um, you know, who, who was seated in a big leather chair, as, you know, in a library where a roaring fireplace was going. Somebody was bringing over scotch in very, very thick glasses. And I would look up and, you know, listen to the words of, you know, this business or, you know, whatever master that never came. So uh, the advice, I'll go back, I guess I'll go back to my dad. And, and, and it doesn't, it, it may sound trite now. But it's not one of those things, uh, do what you love uh, and you'll never work a day in your life stuff. Because I, you know, I don't think anyone believed that. But it was like my first night at the newspaper, 
um, when I was 16 and they told me you're going to work, you start at three in the afternoon, you'll finish like 10 at night, 16, great, 10 at night, I'm going to go out. I had a girlfriend at the time. Great. I'm leaving here at 10. I'll pick you up at 1030. Um, uh, 10, we're going to be working to 11, 11. We're going to be working to midnight, midnight. We're going to work into one, one. We're going to be working to two. So I finally got out of there like close to three in the morning, pissed off girlfriend. And whatever you're 16 years old and you know i couldn't really get home so so i i basically took the subway for as long as it's going to take me to and my father came and picked me up and this was after my first week and i said they said how was it i said i hated it I said why i said ah, first of all i gotta work you know all my friends are out i gotta work uh and that's one thing and second thing is you know the people who are working there they're all a bunch of drunks and losers because they were like i don't say drunks and losers but they're a couple alcoholics and guys slinging them back while we're putting out the newspaper and all. And, uh, and he said two things. He goes, one is I, meaning him, go to a job every day that I hate. If you want to be a, a rock and roll journalist, this is your, your, your path, you know, like uh, cut it some slack. But, but one day you may really love this and, um, and uh, you know, don't give up right away. And second thing is, if these guys are a bunch of drunks and losers and you're so good as you think you are, you should be running this place in a, in a year. So, you know, uh, if, they, if they're all drunks and losers, like you say, go, sh go prove yourself. So, you know, that was quite a, a tongue lashing for, for my dad. It was a very soft spoken guy um, and made me think. And I'm saying, well, I'm not yet. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't quit uh, after a week. And also I had to put into perspective. Uh, so what's more important, me, you know, achieving my dream or me going out you know, Saturday night to, you know, uh, some, uh, some bar you're trying to sneak in underage when you're 16. So I made that decision. So that, that's, I guess, really fine advice, but you know, that, so that's at 16. You know, I want more, but I still want more. And I guess that's about taking steps to take you to the next fork in the road or door. And it's also who the hell do you think you are? You know, like, uh, these guys are drunks and losers. Okay. So you're so good. Show me. That's a very coaching moment, one could say. That's interesting. Do you think that there's a connection between your role teaching at McGill and because there's been an absence of that kind of a, well, perhaps not absence, but you've just shared some of the, the you didn't have one mentor, but I guess that are you, are you a mentor to others and does your role in McGill kind of a plug that gap of being able to kind of a share what you've learned? Well, the whole thing at McGill, the whole class is about, well, the, the genesis of this class was I taught during COVID, I taught a, a remote class. I taught like this, but, but I bought a green screen and I had, I changed clothes for every class and I, every class had a theme and I had props and it wasn't just some droning voice. Um, going on. And I, I loved the students, but I realized they were all timid they were boring, uh, they were gutless, um, uh, you know, they, they were set in their ways. So I went to McGill and I said, now that we're, sort of, we're coming back to real life teaching, I love your students, but they're missing three things, creativity, curiosity, and guts. So I'd like to create a course on, on, on this. I thought they'd say, you're out of your mind. Um, forget it. They did say, you're out of your mind, but we'll take the shot which I couldn't believe. I said, oh, great. And then, now I got to write a 39-hour class on this, which, 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 which I did, uh, which is basically going to become a podcast, he says, as a, almost a commercial, but let's go back. So that's how, how it started. So what happens with the students, I'm going to my third year with this, and 
some of them, some of them say, actually, a lot of them say this course has changed my life, especially a lot of them, some of them have changed their careers. And a lot of my students, they're not the kids. I have very few kids who just came out of undergrad. Most of them are people who are A, taking some time off or B, still working at places like Arthur Anderson or um, uh, McKinsey or banks. And they're all smarter than me. They also have more degrees than me. I only have a Bachelor of Commerce. You know, to teach an MBA, you're supposed to have an MBA or a PhD. I always tell them I'm two degrees short of a thermometer when I teach them. But a lot of them say the course, this course has pushed them and changed their life. There are some of them. So this is one of the things. It's a polarizing thing. Some of my reviews are, are just, you know, great and they're tear inducing. Some of them are like getting a kick in the stones because what, I mean, some of you have to read the bad ones and say, this course is a waste of money. I've wasted $6,000. It's the worst thing ever. Everyone hates this course. Um, the, the, the MBA administration should go in and see what he's saying. Cause you see what he's, what he's teaching and how uh, it was incredible. Like the vitriol was dripping and, and and red hot you know burning through you know stone so it's polarizing so are you a mentor you know uh, to some people i i don't know i guess uh, people have said that i don't get it but i guess uh, better that than being called an imbecile and to some people i am like the devil incarnate and uh and it's funny i just think it's, it's funny to hate something that much and stick it out I always tell them, you know, after the third week, guys, you can still get out of here. Get out if it's not, if if, if you don't see it, because it's not changing. I'm not changing. This is the way it is. So you, you kind of get a feel after nine hours of what this is going to be. If you don't like it, leave. But they stay. So I, I don't understand. It's interesting. It's a choice, not a prison sentence. Yes, indeed. So you've been talking for a while. And what I was hoping to do is being a little bit more nosy and have a couple of quick fire questions. Shoot. Because I really want to understand, because I think some of this will be a bit around how you cultivate your craft, but it's really about what makes you you. So I have to answer fast, right? I have to answer fast? Well, can't think faster a lot? than you have done. Okay, go. You can, you can think a little bit. Like, I don't okay. want to thought this, but, okay. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find the balance as we go. Are there people or online resources you follow to stay on the pulse of things? Like, where do you go to kind of fill your, your creative and kind of a, I guess, logical brain cup? There, there are a couple of people I like. Um, there's a guy, Greg Eisenberg, who's really bright. And he has this, this, this uh, newsletter called So You Need a Robot. It's all about AI. and all. He's really bright. But I've known Greg for years. And he's great. This guy, Saul Colt, is kind of nutty. And I like, he's a really creative guy. Uh, I have three friends, Mitch Joel, Alistair Kroll, and Hugh McGuire. And they, they've done for the past 12 years a blog where each of them shares two links, like links they think others would like. So there's, they, they each share one with each other. So there's six links. Every week, there's six links. And um, some of them sometimes you know misses, but a lot of them are, wow, this is some really interesting stuff. But I also have really interesting, smart friends on social media, a guy like Robert Tursek. Um, uh, there are a few others who, when they post, I say, it's going to be really interesting. So I basically, you know, scroll through Facebook and Instagram and see what these guys and these women are saying and um, and follow them and, and just see what, and sometimes it's random. It's just, okay, somebody posted this article. Uh, I don't necessarily go back to the same places. You know, um, that said, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Not that I'm the greatest financier in the world, trust me. But I just find that it, it has a really interesting 
view of uh, the business world and it, it, it has a politic political stance it's very different from mine so it's great to, to be able to understand like it's not fox news or anything like that nutty but it is con more conservative than i am and i get to see and understand what the other side is kind of thinking and doing so that's what i do and do you have a go-to website or like what when you want to procrastinate or when you're putting something off what do you do i don't procrastinate I, I don't i don't procrastinate i really don't I, I, I know it sounds sounds extreme and it sounds honestly that's a lie, but I don't procrastinate. Even when I say I'm going to watch Ted Lasso or I'm going to watch a show, it's 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 scheduled. This is the reward for doing all this. But I always have something to do, and if I'm not, I'm saying you know do something proactive. Proactive. I, I go to the gym a lot. I play sports a lot. I meditate. I can go on and on and on. But I do not procrastinate. It's it's very rare. And if I find myself procrastinating, I say, hey, you know what? There are plenty of things to do. Uh, even the point of you got to steam. You know, I didn't do it today. You got to steam the sleeves of your jackets that were sit that were sitting in uh, that were sitting that were uh, that sat in um, winter storage. You know, so there's always something to do. I don't procrastinate. What feeds your creativity? <sighs> um, peanut butter. I don't know. I don't know what feeds my creativity. It's just, you know, you, you can accept status quo, which sometimes I even find myself falling into and say, whoa, got to get back out of that. There's nothing that feeds it. It's just, it's just a way of life. It's just a way of life. It's wow. What, what's, what's interesting. What's new? Like why not, you know, find the new as much as you can. Um, like just today I read something, an article that said, actually it was Greg Eisenberg that said, you know, chat GPT is, is dead. It's not dead but you know you clickbait and here's the next thing and it talked about auto gpt and i said oh my god it's amazing so you know what what fuels creativity what feeds it it's just what's the option what's the you know find me the alternative i i don't like the alternative what was your last impulse buy andy <sighs> oh my lord my last you know i got to tell you something i don't impulse buy anymore for for a personal reason and basically a, a, a personal reason where i'm trying to be very tight with my finances but um uh i i you know i i can tell you my 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 last almost impulse buy which i said you don't need it right now uh was a new bag for my hockey equipment because my wheels are a little wonky but you know a little bit of uh, of um wd-40 spray they, they've sort of worked out but i think it's an important point because i used to do impulse buy the impulse bought and it made me feel better and i realized that that's not really it, it, it's, it's a panacea you know it's, it, it's not the the answer and when i look at how much clothes i have and how many pairs of shoes and how many books and how many albums i say it's not now it's time to disperse of rather than get more of rather than 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 you know increase it's it's decrease so i think it's you know what, what what's my next impulse sell will probably be the, a better question coming up very shortly what's one of your annoying habits talking too long when somebody asks me a very short question i think that's one of them there's that uh oh god my <laughs> my, my annoying habits um saying um is one uh, i don't know i you'd have to ask others because i've you know what what i think is completely totally normal other people say drives me nuts and what i may think may drive people crazy it's like oh we don't even notice that so i can give you a list of people who you can probably call and they will give you a full volume of irritating habits what stresses you out the most? The same thing that inspires me the most, and that's the future. 
Describe your tastes in interior design and fashion and potentially jewelry too, because I've seen a few of your pieces. I'm wearing them. I'm wearing them. I'm wearing them all now today because I said I'm on camera. It's time to wear everything. Uh, you know what? It, it, it's, it has to go. Uh, it was the title of a book I wrote, Power Right Between the Eyes. Like, bang. That, that, you know, if you have the option of putting, some, of, of putting something on your wall that's dull or putting something on your wall that make, that make people do that, like, do that. None of the art I have, you know, it's colorful and there's always a, a reason behind it. There's a story behind it and people will want to know the story versus like some picture of some babbling brook and some, you know, washed out farmhouse. Who gives a shit? Like what, what's the story behind that? I don't know. Some guy took a pic, you know, did a, did a painting of a farmhouse, but I've always found like I, I have art that's every piece of it is sparkling. Every piece of it it's bright and it's it, and, it, and, it, and it's confrontational and it tells a story and 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 that's what I think should do. Like, why do I wear these things? I wear them. I like them, but it's also it's a magnet for people to come to me and ask me to talk. And you know, believe it or not, I'm, I'm quite rel quite shy. And uh, this uh, mag, but every piece I'm wearing has a story. The, the, the rings have stories. The bracelets have stories. The watch has a story. So um, every one of them is is, is a reason for people. Uh, to talk so that's why thank you for putting up with my nosy questions i've got one one left. okay shoot on a scale of one to ten how weird are you andy how weird how weird i think i am two how weird most people think i am ten but that's the beauty that's i just think this this is the way to be and if people think it's weird hallelujah and if weirdness turns people off then goodbye and if weirdness attracts people wonderful but man, I've, I've, I've stopped trying to live to other people's uh, parameters and other people's expectations a long time ago. Thank you so much for taking this time to run through some of the impacts to your life, a bit around who you are. I feel like I know you a lot better now. So thank well, you so much. Well, there is a win for both of us. Thank you. Thank you, Maxine. And I look forward to where this goes, because as we know, this is just the jump off point, right? This is just the beginning. Here's to the next fork in the road. <laughs> so that concludes Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform. And of course, start your journey with us today at labelsessions.com.